Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we've enjoyed creating it. A lot of people ask us why we do this, and every week I say the same thing. It's certainly not to make money, Uh, but Bela and I both really enjoy learning from smart and interesting people about how the world's changing, how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing, and we like to overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons we've each learned over three-plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people that we've met recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. This week's guest is Jim Williams from Upper Hudson Coffee Roasters. Jim has a fascinating background. In addition to starting Upper Hudson Coffee Roasters, where he buys 50-pound bags of coffee beans and roasts them and sells them uh, to retail outlets. He has also been a dean of students at a military prep school. He has worked for a professional cycling team, and for a period of time, he was even a male stripper. So it was a very interesting conversation for sure. I agree, Bela. This is a story about life's second and third chances. And, you know, I think many people know this, that there's a lot of ups and downs uh, that people face as they as they grow older. And people have choices about how to approach those ups and downs. And, yeah, as you'll as you'll hear in the, in the coming minutes, Jim has certainly taken a really interesting path uh, as he worked through a series of challenges and a, and a pretty interesting set of issues that he that he faced. But before we get into it, we have exciting news. And we are proud to announce that our podcast is now brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. They are nationally recognized attorneys that take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters and have a long history of success with startup businesses. Yeah, Bela, we are excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor because you and I both know that they think like entrepreneurs. They take a pragmatic approach to getting things done, and they spot issues before they come problems. So we can confidently recommend them. So whether you need help starting, funding, or selling a business from single-person startups to nine-figure exits, the attorneys at Phillips Lytle can help. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. I have worked with these guys for over 20 years, and every time uh, I see them at the table, whether they're sitting next to me on my side of the table or if they're sitting on the other side of the table representing the company, I know it's going to be a good process because they're highly skilled, they're reasonable, and they know what they're doing. So for more information, contact Phillips Lytle partner, Rich Honan. If you're an old school phone person like Mike and I, you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225. Or if you're of the generation that prefers online communication, you can reach Rich directly from his firm's website at phillipslidle.com. Let me spell that for you. It's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. And it'll be great for us if you let Rich know that you heard about Phillips Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. 
So it's an interesting story that we've got coming up with Jim Williams. Let's get right to it. Hello, folks. Today I'm here with Jim Williams, a really interesting person that I met uh, through my adventures of being a ski patrolman at uh, Gore Mountain. And um, I got to know him a little bit, and he has a really fascinating background uh, that is, uh, I think, the epitome of unconventional. So uh, welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, glad to be here. Excellent. So, Jim, uh, can you describe where we're at right now? Yeah, we're sitting uh, in the middle of the Adirondack State Park, six million acres uh, of public and privately owned land, uh, of which I actually own three and a quarter of. Um, Lifelong dream to build my own home, and I was able to accomplish that. and we're sitting at uh, maybe a 10-foot-long pine slab dining room table. Did you make the pine the dining room table? Well, Mother Nature made the wood. I, I was able to uh, get it down, cut it up, and yes, I made the table. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So this is a whole other skill that I learned when I walked into your place that you have that I didn't know you had, which was building a home and woodworking and... Uh, all that kind of stuff he is yeah um the first thing I ever built was a garage right across the driveway so I wanted to make sure I could build a garage and have it stand up at least for a year before I started the house <laughs> um but uh yeah it was always a lifelong goal so it was it was fun to achieve I'm by no means a uh professional uh carpenter and and i don't think I would want to work for anyone else building a home. Um, I know where all my mistakes are, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, but that's not your primary business. So when you're at a social event and someone comes up to you and says, hey, Jim, pleasure to meet you. Uh, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Uh, it's a little easier now. It's had many different uh, answers in the past. Um, but at 53 years old uh, now, I can comfortably say I'm a coffee roaster. Excellent. So you have a coffee business. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So I um, about f- uh, three and a half years, four years ago now, um, I had been in education for 23 years and uh, and had an aha moment, uh, which many times you have when you have a health issue. Um, my aha moment came when I had to. Uh, I drove to the hospital for a surgery that was about a 50-50 shot of survival. And I was sitting in the parking lot trying to figure out what to do with my car keys. And I didn't know whether I should bring them in and give them to the nurse um, because someone might need those keys if things didn't go well. Um, So after debating and scratching my head for a little bit, I hit them in the gas cap and left a note on the dashboard that said... um, if this car is still here five days from now and it needs to be moved, it's yours. Things didn't go so well. Um, oh my God. So that was my aha moment. Um, I was in California at the time working in school administration and uh, I hadn't ever lived full time in the house I, I built. So I said, what are you doing? Go home and back to the Adirondacks and live. Um, with no real plan, other than you know confidence in my ability to figure it out and to find a good balance in life, and uh, coffee has always been a 
an extremely uh, important part of my life in many aspects, uh, from starting to drink coffee with my Italian grandmother at 12 to um, leaving the house at, at 17, saying, as long as I make an, enough money that I can drink good coffee, I'm doing okay. Um, to touring plantations in the 90s in Costa Rica, and, uh, and uh, then, you know, to today where... Um, I was really interested in how coffee was grown and the processing that it goes through and never thought much about the roasting end of things um, until I actually got green coffee cherries and uh, pitted them and got the coffee beans and tried to roast them in a popcorn popper and had probably the worst cup of coffee in my entire life. Um, and of course, I, you know, in, when I was in education, I taught science so the scientist in me kicked in and said, well, I can do better than this and, uh, and continued to work and experiment. And um, I needed people to try my coffee. And uh, I had willing drinkers and then willing purchasers and said, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. Um, you know, and at the same time, I, when I came back, I had taken a job with a solar company. Um, I was a 49, 50-year-old a uh, guy hauling solar panels up a roof, and and um, I'm proud to say I was out working the young bucks uh, because I was chemical free at work, and uh, and uh, and it was a temporary job that allowed me to then build my coffee business uh, until that was able to sustain me. Yeah. So let's talk about the coffee business a little bit. So. Uh, I think probably most people listen to the podcast drink coffee, but they have no idea of sort of where it comes from and and what the process is to get it to inside the bag yeah. that I buy. So talk to us about that a little. Yeah, I mean, so much so much depends on on there's coffee growing regions in the globe, and most of those are you know very temperate climates. Um, coffee does better with cool nights, warm days. Uh, shade grown is going to produce a better fruit. Um, soil quality is is extremely important, um, as well as the variety of the bean. So, um, you know, I use a Costa Rican coffee. I, I drank a lot and roasted a lot of bad beans before I got to finding the bean that I thought fit the flavor profile of people here in the Adirondacks. Um, but coffee is a, a shrub it uh, produces a cherry, and it's, uh, the cherry is red when it's ripe. Uh, it needs to be depulped. Uh, sometimes the cherry has a hard shell on it, so it needs to be um, cracked. Other times it's just a, like a bran layer. Um, so there's a lot of washing and processing that occurs uh, on the field uh, or in the home country. And then it's uh, bagged up into burlap bags and uh, shipped out to various locales. Mm-hmm. So you buy it in, in a burlap bag? Yeah, I get a, I, I, my beans come from the Terrazu region of Costa Rica. Um, it's uh, all grown above 4,000 foot elevation in volcanic soil. And it comes from, the, the beans that I get come from a cooperative. So for me, I looked at organic and I looked at um, free trade and really felt that was important for my brand. Um, but I settled on this bean. It's not certified organic, 
because it is coming from a cooperative of small individual, uh, individually owned farms in Costa Rica, uh, no corporation farms. So it would be cost prohibitive for each of those small farmers to be certified organic. Um, but it is free trade, and the people are living on the land and, and caring for it. Oh, excellent. So we've had someone else join us here in the room. Uh, <laughs> you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, the guest that, uh, and you'll hear maybe Hedgy squeak, and the bone chewed is my uh, year-and-a-half-year-old golden retriever, uh, known as Bean, who is uh, chewing on my hand at the moment. Um, he has been decaffeinated, so I'm hoping he will soon calm down. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, once you uh, get the beans here, I assume you get them shipped here to the Adirondacks? Yeah, they come on a container container vessel into um, Continental Terminals in, in Newark, New Jersey. And then I get them freighted up uh, here. And I still have a connection at Apex Solar. So um, they have a loading dock. So they'll get unloaded at Apex, transferred to a buddy who has a pickup truck and... Uh, I actually, I'm getting a shipment tonight. He'll come up and uh, and I'll cook him a dinner that uh, is usually steak, uh, Angus beef, something that I've traded with another vendor at the farmers markets for a bag of coffee. <laughs> so it's a it's a great little uh, circle. So is the, there is this nice uh, barter element to uh, to your business? Absolutely, yeah. So cheese, fruits, vegetables, meats. Um, it, it's endless pickles. Uh, there's so many people, uh, making so many great things, uh, out there. Um, it, it, some of these farmers markets and they are, uh, like me, uh, you know, living, you know, their life, their American dream yeah. and, uh, selling great products. Yeah. So once you get the, the bag of beans, uh, yeah. what happens next? So I get them, uh, the, the biggest challenge for me is actually carrying the 150-pound bags up the uh, stairs into my garage loft, which has been certified by New York Ag Markets as a food processing uh, center. So I had to get licensed. Um, and once they're up there, then I have a little small five-pound roaster um, that I, uh, I roast uh, five pounds at a time, uh, and I'm able to do about four roasts an hour. So I'm a real small roaster, and, uh, and uh, you know, I have a computerized roaster that's got thermal couplings in it. Um, you're always trying to, you know, I, at this point now, I know the, the, the roasting profile that I want is coffee goes through um, three different phases in the roasting cycle, and, and you can manipulate um, the heat, the air, in the time to uh, take a, a bean and have it perform differently just by roasting. Oh, wow. So you can, you can take the same bean, and depending upon how you roast it with all these variables, you can get a different flavor. You get a completely different flavor, yeah. Yeah, so you want to, you know, for me, I, I'm, I'm in the Adirondacks of New York, and, um, you know, I love coffee, but, but it was always a challenge to find a good cup of coffee um and i know the locals all um we don't have starbucks up here we don't have dunkin donuts up here we've got stewart's coffee and um if you're able to get the stewart's 
cup of coffee two minutes after it's brewed. Um, maybe you'll get a cup that's that's drinkable, and, and I don't mean to be a coffee snob by any means. Um, but there's a whole new realm of coffee out there uh, that people uh, don't know. Um, I, for one, uh, was married and divorced, and, and when I started roasting coffee, it was my goal to... Um, roast beans in a way that would not remind me of divorce so when i sat down in the morning i didn't want to have burnt and bitter in my cup of coffee (laughs) so uh that's an excellent line (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's um yeah if you don't get that stewart's cup within the first couple of minutes it it is divorce in a cup Oh, excellent, excellent. Uh, so you do four roasts an hour, did you say? Five pounds, that's uh, 20 pounds an hour. Yeah, I can do about 20 pounds an hour. In, in um, you know, commercial roasters will do 100 pounds sure. in a roast, up to 400 pounds in an hour. So, you know, with with my with my size, you're, um, people are really getting a, a, a consistent product in the sense that the beans are able to distribute throughout the drum and the roaster without being buried by other beans. Um, so you want to have even heat distribution. Um, and, you know, with a smaller roaster, you're able to achieve that and uh, and really have a good high-quality coffee that yeah. way. So you're a one-person operation? I am, yes. Uh, back to that original question. Uh, I say I'm a coffee roaster, but if she's cute and she's asking... and and uh, and I need to impress her. I'll tell her that I'm the CEO of Upper Hudson Coffee. Uh, and uh, but I'm also the delivery man. I'm the sales guy. I'm the logistics coordinator. Um, the graphic artists. I am. It's truly a one man show. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in many ways, uh, there's a lot of coffee brands out there. Yeah. And and so establishing a new brand. And sort of that brand identity and then building your customer base. Talk to us about how you sort of did that and how you think about that. Yeah, so I, I wanted um, I wanted to roast for the local people and, and expand their um, palate, for, palate and passion for coffee. Um, as well as build a, a business that at the end of the day I f- could feel really proud of. Um, I love where I live. Uh, I've guided the Hudson River here in in North Creek uh, since I was 18 years old and and um, loved being on the river and there's a lot of really unique history here and and um, I had a dual degree in in school with both science and history so I wanted to celebrate the area that I lived um, and hence the name Upper Hudson Coffee uh, came about um, when I was roasting illegally, I, I roasted under my nickname, Jetson. Uh, but really, I didn't want the coffee to be about me. I wanted it to be about the Adirondacks and where we live. So each blend has a, um, uh, a person on the front of the bag connected uh, through either history or in association with the river, uh, both currently um, and, and historically. So... My most popular roast is, of course, the the Roosevelt blend, and that's for Teddy Roosevelt, who found out at the North Creek train station 
that he was um, actually president of the United States when McKinley was uh, shot and subsequently got septus. Uh, He was up in the Adirondacks uh, at the source of the Hudson River uh, camping. Um, So I wanted to celebrate the local area and, and that way the locals could identify with it as their coffee. Um, there was some strategic thought that went into it because um, geographically where we are, without question, we're on the upper Hudson River, um, but the people in New York City consider Poughkeepsie the upper Hudson River. And um, even though we're almost 150, 200 miles north of Poughkeepsie, uh, so all along the Hudson River, people could identify with it as theirs. Um, Roosevelt likewise has connections downstate uh, as well. So um, while I'm celebrating the Upper Hudson River, there's there's also a connection to people throughout the uh, Hudson Valley region. So it, it allowed me to have a greater geographical reach than, um, say, a Lake George coffee yes. uh, would. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to wanted to brew a, and make a, a coffee that people uh, could um, expand their palate on and, and identify as their own. Um, likewise, we're also in a tourist area, and um, being in a tourist area, people want to bring a piece of the Adirondacks home with them, and uh, a, a non-perishable bag of coffee uh, works. And, and people that go visit other people bring a piece of the Adirondacks with them. Um, that being said, it, I also wanted to have a model that if I ever felt motivated enough or if I ever wanted to actually have my dream of a coffee shop on some Southern California beach, um, that I had an avenue to grow and potentially franchise. And, and the model, you know and I should be careful saying this to um, all, the, all your listeners uh, because uh, it might creep up out there and, and I, I have my own competition, but the model that I kind of created with the coffee could work in the Finger Lakes region. Uh, it could work in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It could work in just about any tourist town in America um, where there are locals that identify with it and are proud of it and tourists that come and want to take a piece of it home yeah so it's it's i just thought of this and and i mean this in a good way sort of like the t-shirt model right you can have t-shirts from phoenix arizona that say you know i was at phoenix i was in phoenix but it gives you that identity with that geographic region absolutely absolutely um yeah and and you know, I thought of how I could franchise it, but you know, those those thoughts are definitely on the on the yeah. burner at this point. So, when you started, how did you how did you think about distribution and sales? How how did that process work for you? Uh, when I started, I just had a goal of okay, what my first goal was um, what <laughs> how many bags of coffee do I need to sell so that I don't have to go to this. Um, uh, solar company warehouse every day. Uh, and I had a goal in mind and, and quickly achieved that. And, and what I found, found out when I started to go around and talk to wholesalers, my goal was to have one country Adirondack store uh, to, in each town to carry my coffee. 
I didn't want to saturate. I just wanted to be in every town. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then likewise, supplement that with some, uh, some of the more popular cafes or um, camps, I should say, because they're really not hotels, but, but lodges here that uh, serve coffee to have them carry it and serve it. So I ended up in a, in a couple of different restaurants that are high quality, um, some great establishments that I wholesale to. And then likewise, I uh, do three main farmer's markets to extend my reach. Um, and some of those are, are, are more tourist-based farmer's markets. Um, and, and the combination of them is, has worked out really well for me. Yeah. So uh, if I want to, if I'm listening to this and I want to get some upper uh, Hudson coffee, yeah. uh, how do I do that? Um, well, and I'm not, in, I'm not living in the Adirondacks. Yeah. So I, can, I, can I do that? Yeah, you can do that. And, and that was some of the idea of the farmer's markets was we have a lot of people that come here and they're second homeowners and they vacation here. Um, and, and of course they will drink my coffee, but then they go home and, um, and I have a little square store. I'm, I'm 53 again, so I'm not, uh, technologically advanced, um, but I, I do have Square and am able to process credit cards. And they have a feature uh, where they uh, will host a website without having to have a domain name and, and you know, pay a, a hosting company to have your website. So um, I made a little web store on Square and have all my coffee available there. And um, I'm a... I'm a hack at social media but i do have a a facebook page and an instagram with links to that so on the back of my bag i said follow us on facebook and instagram and they can find their way Mm -hmm. um to me um and again i find that i sell more to a generation a little younger than i am they're very uh nimble with with you know technology so they (laughs) found me and and uh, can can buy it online but it's it's fun to ship to the upper peninsula of um michigan and into vale colorado and you know to um sanibel island in florida and uh san diego california and um and see where the coffee goes yeah and then likewise have people send me pictures of them enjoying my coffee so i've Upper Hudson Coffee has made it to the, the um, research station on the South Pole, and it's made it up Mount Hood. Wow. And it's uh, made it up to the Arctic Circle in, in, uh, in Norway. And, um, yeah, so it's got a, a pretty good geographical reach. I just wish I could be as well-traveled as my coffee. So if I, if I search on uh, Upper Hudson Coffee, I will uh, come across your website? Yeah, just a Google search in... in um, the Facebook page and also the uh, Square Store will show up. Okay, excellent, excellent. So uh, you're still a one-person operation. Yep. And uh, it sounds like from our previous conversations sitting around the ski patrol hut that that's a conscious, conscious, that's a deliberate decision on your part to remain small and to sort of have a uh, life-work balance. Yeah. So can you share your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, if I were 25 years younger and I'd started this and hadn't gone through the, the medical, you know, issue that I have, I, I probably would have tried to grow and go head to toe with uh, Green Mountain Coffee because um, while they make great coffee, uh, the big thing about the Green Mountains of Vermont is it's actually the Adirondacks uh, that make them beautiful. Um, and, and actually, our mountains are greener than theirs anyways. Um, but uh, where I am at life right now, it, it's important for me to have balance. And, uh, you know, I have many, many passions and um, and a life out of balance isn't a, necessarily a life well lived. So um, being a one man show, I don't have to worry about employees. Um, being a one man show, I don't have to um, stress over the responsibility of um, not just employing somebody, but then you have a you're, you're really committed to their family and their life and you're in you invest in a lot of other people and in in many aspects that can take away from uh your own enjoyment and um i i want to have a socially conscious company and if it's only me right now that i'm socially conscious too uh and my life is well balanced and i'm a happy employee um then that's really important so it allows me because a lot of my um, businesses are in the Adirondacks north of where we are sitting, uh, they close down for the winter. And it allows me to um, still make a decent wage with my other uh, wholesale accounts, but it slows enough that I can go up and work as a ski patroller at Gore and and pretend I'm a 19-year-old ski bum all over again. Um, you know, and that's a good balance for me. If... if uh, you don't get outside in the winter here, then then you'll go stir crazy. Um, but I like to fly fish and and I like to work with wood and build things and I like to you know get on my bike and ride miles and um, make sure that I burn enough calories that I don't have to buy new pants when I drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about balance for me. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So let's take a step back. Uh, where'd you where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I, I was born in Rochester, New York. Um, so, in many aspects, I'm I'm a. Uh, if you were to talk about fish in the Adirondacks, I, I'm what's called a rainbow trout. Um, I've been here for a long time, but I wasn't actually born here. But you're widely accepted as being uh, somewhat native. Uh, the brook trout, of course, is the native who was born here and always lived here, and the brown trout is a recent transplant to the Adirondack waters. So I. I was born in Rochester and, and, and grew up there, but knew at a very young age that the suburban lifestyle uh, was not mine. Um, I love my parents to death. Uh, I think they're wonderful people, but they provided me with an example of uh, what I didn't want in life. Uh, Dad was middle management at Xerox. Mom worked for a tool and die company. And uh, they all had big dreams and aspirations that they talked about and never really acted or, or um, they were left unfulfilled. So I wanted, I knew at a young age that that wasn't going to be me. I was going to um, follow my passions and, and 
and work for me always had to be something that I loved to do and that I was excited to wake up and go to. Um, so I got out of Rochester at a, at a, at a relatively young age and, and actually went to high school in Lake Placid. So um, was a hockey player and played hockey at a pretty good school up there. And, um, and uh, yeah, so that's what brought me to the Adirondacks. Got it. Yeah. And we always vacationed up here as yeah. kids. So yeah. it was a part of our life from a young age. And uh, did you go to college? I did, yeah. So I, I left um, Northwood Prep, where I was going to high school, as a junior. And uh, this is before college placement. But I had to complete my freshman year of college in order to get my high school diploma. So uh, Sounds like a catch-22. <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, so I, I, uh, my first stint at college was at Nazareth College of Rochester, um, and it had just gone co-ed. So having been a hockey player playing at Northwood with very few girls, I wanted to switch the dynamic a little bit. Um, so it was an eight-to-one ratio, girls to guys, and I, was a, I went there and studied biochemistry. And um, I lasted uh, my year, got my high school diploma, started my second year. In about October, I realized that I probably was going to take some time off. And by um, the middle of October, I was living at, uh, in Killington. Um, told all my teachers I had a unique ex- uh, job experience in the travel industry, even though I was tuning skis at night. And told them I really valued their course and I would come back and, and uh, be there for the final exam in December. So in a sense, I skipped class from mid-October until December and came back and I let, gave myself a week to track down people that were in my class and um, get their notes and cram and study. And I told them I would keep up with the work and I hadn't done anything. Uh, and I came back and somehow I was able to pull a 3.2, I think, for that semester. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, I, I didn't go back to school uh, for five years, not until I was 23, 22, 23, um, and was a raft guide in the summers and uh, started guiding here uh, and, and then would go to Maine in the summers and guide and back to Killington and... Um, live the life of a ski bum raft guide. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what happened after that? You went back to school? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, as all good stories go, I met a girl. um, And uh, she was a raft guide as well, soccer player. And and she was from Maine. So uh, she was spending fall semester in uh, the University of Southern Maine. And, uh, you know, it was time, time to go back to school. And at that point, I went back as a history major. And um, I uh, was on the fast track then. Uh, two and a half later, I uh, graduated with a, um, a degree in both biology and history. So I had enough credits in biology and I and took electives in pathophysiology and microbiology and was able to get a double degree. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and she finished up as well, and and uh, the idea was to go into education at that point. Um, history I found uh, amazing and didn't have good history teachers and thought that's what I would be, was a history teacher. Um, 
But as it turned out, the first job I got was back at uh, Northwood School in Lake Placid uh, as a hockey coach and a, and a biology teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that started sort of your teaching career? That started... Because being a coach is being a teacher as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was a triple threat. So I lived in the dorm, supervised kids, was a hockey coach, and, uh, and also a teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I stayed at Northwood for nine years. Okay. And then I had an old sage that um, told me, you need to leave. And I really didn't understand why. And... Um, and he said, if you stay here, you'll be like me. You'll be 65 with no equity. And he goes, you need to leave because then you can get a larger salary and you can build equity. Um, and I took his advice. And I went, uh, I went uh, down to Saddle River, New Jersey, took a job uh, at a school there and uh, bought my first house, which was a tiny little 800-square-foot home uh, without a basement Um and gutted it and fixed it up and and then the housing market blew up and I did really well knowing that I was there just to be a little personal Robin Hood to myself um, I uh, made sure that I kept an eye on the housing market so I did well with that and sale of that house and um, at the same time I had been involved in pro cycling and uh, was able to make the transition to managing pro cycling teams for for two or three years full time. Whoa, whoa, whoa! So pro cycling just sort of popped up here out of nowhere. Yeah. So, yeah, hockey coach, hockey you coach, go to Saddle River teaching job. Yeah, more responsibility in that job, I assume. Yeah, I was a department chair. Okay, yeah, at a private school. Private school. Yeah, and then so bridge us to the pro cycling. Pro cycling so- came. I was a hockey player, so uh, watching the 1980 Olympics and Eric Hyden crush the competition by winning five golds and speed skating I said to myself well what does he do to train and he uh, used the bike and uh, my passion with the bike began same time as I was a 12 year old hockey player and trained on the bike Um, never thought it would be a career uh, but I loved it and when hockey ended my passion for cycling didn't and when I was at Northwood I had more time and I had summers and um, I got out of the summertime rafting and and uh pushed myself on the bike as far as I could and uh trained and lived the life of a pro racer at least for two months and um yeah so cycling was a huge part of my life uh as well usually mostly as recreation and in racing but you know um and I progressed pretty well up the ladder of regional riders uh but it got me in contact with um, managers and directors of, of teams and eventually I was um, hired to work with a Canadian outfit and I worked with them until one of their riders had a, had an issue with um, bad blood uh, and uh, or bl- bad urine as well uh, and the sponsor withdrew and I was able to get snatched up by a sports management company out of Wisconsin and uh, then spent three years traveling the world and managing cycling teams. Oh, wow. So, so you left a teaching job in New Jersey at that time? Yeah, yeah, because when I sold my house and, and I didn't have a place to live, so uh, I just transitioned because I'd already been working with teams. Yeah. And uh, I spent two years living out of a suitcase and coming back here to the Adirondacks and pinch, pitching my tent and, 
uh, living out of a canvas condo. It's what I called it. Uh, building the garage, which eventually turned into my where I roast. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I left cycling. Um, I, I w- had done 300 days a year on the road for two consecutive years. Uh, and I was pretty tired to travel at that point. I didn't want to go to Bermuda. I didn't want to go to Stuttgart, Germany for the World Championships where actually Oktoberfest, um, why didn't I go? Uh, Oktoberfest is. Uh, I just wanted to come back and spend time in my tent in the Adirondacks. So I was able to um, get a job back up in Lake Placid at a second school uh, there, which was National Sports Academy, and uh, um, was able to teach exercise physiology there and became a dean of students. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) So you got into the... uh fun job of uh being responsible for a whole bunch of students yeah the discipline end of things (laughs) yes (laughs) you make friends there and parents love you yeah yeah but i so let let me ask you this question uh being a dean of students you know certainly has a lot of responsibility you get to interact uh with some students that you really enjoy and you get to interact with some students that are a challenge what did you learn from that experience uh, what I learned from it is, is you, you go in with a, everyone goes into their life with biases and, um, and kids and students get the benefit of the doubt and, and, uh, because they're young. Uh, but what I learned is that, that kids are no different than adults and, um, Every kid, there is a key that you are responsible to finding in order to reach them so that you can make an impact on their life. Um, And and it's really no different uh, with adults. So um, as you walk through your normal life, there's there's people that you make quick judgments about of, oh, they're this or, oh, they're that, or, um, you know, because of your quick observation or interaction in 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 reality you you have no idea what's going on in their life um and if you take the time to figure out what's going on in their life it explains a lot of their current behaviors yeah so in dealing with people that's important and um and likewise if if there's anything i learned it's it's just patience for people um talking to people communicating with people trying to um, communicate to them on their level, uh, even if you're not smart enough to communicate on their level. Yeah. You know, that, that reminds me of um, <laughs> one of the few things I remember from elementary school was reading a book about Abraham Lincoln. Yep. Being a history guy, maybe you're aware of this. And the story goes something like he was on the floor of Congress talking to another congressman. This is before he was president. And uh, one congressman said, gee, you know, I think pointed to somebody up in the, uh, on the floor and said, gee, that guy's a real jerk. And Abraham Lincoln said, yeah, I feel the same way. I think I need to get to know him better. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's true. And some people uh, will come to my table and they'll say that they're a coffee snob and uh, and when when you can talk to them and show an interest or show a passion 
uh, a lot of that snobbery disappears. Yeah, yeah. So uh, our third guest here, being the dog, has just uh, torn apart and disintegrated <laughs> one of his stuffed toys, I see. Yes, uh, Hedgehog, uh, Hedgy, as we call him. Um, is, is no longer. <laughs> no, he's been eviscerated, and his squeaker is, uh, is now uh, on the table and out of Bean's mouth. <laughs> so is this a, a common uh, theme with Bean? Um, hedgehogs, yes. He, they're his favorite, I see. by far. And... Um, he's nervous about us talking, so uh, there's no rocks to play with here in the house. So oh, I he'll, see. That's how he calms his nerves. This is how he calms his nerves. Yeah, yeah. all of Hedgehog's stuffing is now on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Great. Uh, so what else is there about you in this very interesting life that you led in this journey that, that I haven't asked you that we should talk about? Uh I mean, there's some there's some R-rated chapters for sure um, uh, that that came up. Uh, that that girl that I met that got me back to school. Eventually, we we did get a divorce, um, and under under not the best of circumstances. Not that there was animosity, but because of um, influences at the school that uh, played a role, uh, along with a. Uh, head of school that um, didn't really do the right thing. So you guys both worked at the same place. Yeah, we worked together, and yeah. uh, and it, and she struggled with alcoholism and, mm-hmm. and got sobriety. And another teacher used her desire for alcohol to get her drinking again and had an affair with her. Um, and the head of school didn't find out until a year later when I finally spilled the beans um, because this member was uh, a uh, superior of both of ours um, there was the potential grounds for sexual harassment uh, and as opposed to dealing with that individual in in, uh, a moral and ethical way he dealt with that individual in a in a way that really was to hide appearances. Yeah. And two weeks after he found out we had a sexual harassment policy. Um, so that kind of, um, that definitely bothered me. Uh, so I wanted to have a conversation about morality with that head of school. Uh, so I tried to figure out how I could best do that. So I, I did spend some time as a, uh, exotic dancer for bachelorette shows um and everyone in town kind of knew it uh but after two years he never called me into his office so i determined that i wasn't going to get that conversation oh i see so that was that was your bait to get called in. that was my bait to get called in yeah and and he was well aware but never did uh-huh. yeah. uh, he was concerned about appearances um so i tried to be um give him an appearance that he should be concerned with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the conversation never happened. Uh, and, and so goes it in life sometimes. Yeah. I think it's really interesting uh, how organizations deal with those ethical questions. And, and some of them are, are true and tried, and they have really high ethical standards. And if you, if you cross that line you're dealt with promptly and efficiently and effectively 
and you either change behavior or you're gone. Yep. And other ones keep moving that line depending upon who you are within yeah. the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, boy, you asked previously, you know, what I learned from education is in uh, my last teaching uh, administrative job was as a dean of students at Naw Boys Military School. So I did student discipline for not just the kids that were threatened to be sent away, but actually were. Um, and I learned a lot. And what I learned uh, is that there are kids with a criminal mindset that grow up to be adults. Uh, and if you don't change the or give them moral framework and boundaries, they will be one of two things. They'll be an extremely rich um, uh, drug dealer uh, that won't get caught because they're smart enough not to get caught, or they'll be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I think there's a third choice, or they'll be dead. Or they'll be dead, yeah, dead and in jail, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so for for me, that moral fabric you know, I want to be able to put my head down at night and sleep well. Yeah. And I don't want to have regrets of what I said to people or how how I treated someone. Uh, and, uh, and likewise, I want my business to uh, reflect the same thing. Uh, I have pulled my coffee off of store shelves because the business owner didn't reflect my morals in standards that I have for, for my company and business and how, uh, how people should be. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we all have to learn that moral character that each one of us has somehow. And we either learn it by ourselves or we have people who guide us and give us some founding principles to, to, to then, you know, modify that, that suit us. So that's that work that you were doing there, I think is really, really important. And the fact that you, you sort of recognize that that was part of that responsibility, I think says a lot about your own moral character. Yeah, it's, it was it, absolutely extremely gratifying. Um, uh, and, it, and it was a, uh, working with kids is, is a, a frustrating, um, a demanding job, uh, but likewise one with great rewards that you don't see until... 10, 15 years down the road yeah. when all of a sudden they're, they're, uh, they pop up on social media now and, and um, everybody uh, back when they were in school said that they were going to never achieve, amount to anything or achieve anything and you see that they are successful. Yeah. Um, you know, some of my, my greatest rewards have come in education 10 years down the road for sure. Right, right. Yeah. Well, Jim... Uh, Oh, I got to ask you one more question. So when I first met you, yeah, uh, I knew you as Jetson. Yes. So, uh, but your your proper name is Jim Williamson. Yeah, Jim Williams. Jim yeah. Williams. Um, excuse me, Jim yeah. Williams. So where did Jetson come from? So when I started guiding here as an eighteen year old young buck, uh, river guide, river guide. Um, uh, I had a bunch of friends, twenty five, thirty years old, and and uh, and. They wore a lot of flannel, and, and I I didn't mind wearing a bl- bright blue fleece and have sunglasses on and still had enough hair up top that I could rock a pretty good hockey mullet 
at the time. It's 1980s, so uh, it's long gone now. Um, and they thought I was from another planet, so they started calling me Jetson. And uh, they started calling me Jetson, and then other people said, well, I thought his name was Jim. And said, oh, no, it's Jim Jetson. Oh, yeah, it's Jim Jetson. And then I somehow had paychecks written to Jim Jetson. And <laughs> I would go to the bank, and the cashier would say, hey, Jetson, how you doing? And I would cash my Jim Jetson paycheck. And um, still to this day, I will get checks written to Jim Jetson, and I can go into our bank and cash them as yes. Jim Jetson. So it's not an alias. Uh, no, but it has served as an alias at times. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, it's always good to have, you know, an alias if needed. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Jim. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much for taking time uh, to invite me into your beautiful home here in the, up, in the Adirondacks and uh, spend uh, this uh, hour with uh, me uh, discussing uh, what you do. It's awesome, man. Thanks for having me. And, uh, and as soon as we turn this off, we're going to go do some fly fishing. Perfect. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. Wow, Bela, what a story. What were your takeaways? So I think I had two big key takeaways. Um, well, actually, there was two big key takeaways. And, and one thing I, I learned, because uh, I went to his place for the interview, and uh, I have known him, I've known Jim, or Jetson, as he is called, um, for, for quite a few years as a ski patroller. And uh, I went to his uh, three-acre retreat, is what I would call it, uh, and it turns out he built the whole thing, uh, pounded every nail. And uh, it was just uh, one of those amazing things where I was in awe of uh, the amount of time and energy it all must have taken for him to do that. And um, I think the, the link here is that, you know, he's had a couple challenges in his life. Uh, he had sort of a relationship that broke up in a not that nice a way. Uh, he clearly had some uh, health issues uh, that he shared with me even in more detail, you know, off the air, as they say. And, uh, you know, he, he talked about that sitting in the parking lot and leaving the note in his car because he wasn't sure that uh, he was going to be able to get back in it uh, uh, some days later and drive it away when he was at the hospital. So I think uh, what he did there is he took those challenging uh, things in life, and he channeled them into his business and his uh, his house, uh, his abode. Uh, you know, he he channeled that energy. He didn't let it uh, sort of derail his life, but he actually used it to help focus his life and and make it into a better thing. So I just think that's sort of a great overall lesson uh, in life. And, and sort of, to me, was a really great takeaway and, and something, quite frankly, I, I, didn't, I didn't know about him at all. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I agree, uh, Bela, that, you know, a lot of people talk about entrepreneurship as something that's risk-taking, right, and stepping into the unknown. But a lot of people don't talk about the fact that entrepreneurship is about taking control over your own life, of being your own boss, like you said, right, of having some control over when all this uncertainty was going on in his world, that his home was something he built with his own hands. And his business, his livelihood was something that he could create with his own kind of moral compass and uh, with his uh, interest in how customer service should be and things like this. And with um, f f 
the, the agricultural product, the coffee itself, uh, coming from a cooperative that he believed in and that uh, that he had an interest in, in in making sure that they were also having value created for them. So, you know, I think it's this this really interesting look at entrepreneurship that, you know, we've had several guests, you know, over the last year or so um, that have had little parts of this. But in one, one big package here, uh, Jim's a guy that used entrepreneurship, I think, as a way to take control of his life and his livelihood in a positive way way that creates value and benefit for others around him, his suppliers, uh, his community, his customers. Um, so I think it was a really interesting story in that sense and a, and a really um, a, a really great example of this idea of, of why being an entrepreneur can, uh, can really be a life-changing experience and why people fail and keep trying again, right? Uh, there's something to it. And so this is kind of an interesting iteration of that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, excellent, excellent point, Mike. The other thing that struck me, when we had this conversation uh, with him, was this notion of a niche business that's regionally branded, right? So he took his Upper Hudson Coffee Roasters and he branded it, you know, he's got one one type of coffee that's a Roosevelt, i.e. named after the president who had lots of connections to the Upper Hudson River and the Adirondacks. He took another one and branded it, uh, by the name of Barton. Barton is a big business person. Uh, uh, there's Barton Mines, which up there, which mines like 90% of the garnet in the world. Uh, so he was really clever in sort of building this brand around a tourist geography, which then has people who come there want to buy some of that and take it home. Uh, that, just like people buy T-shirts, right? The analogy I have is the T-shirt shops that exist in every tourist trap in in the in the world and they're branded to that location you know whether it be a lake george t-shirt or a myrtle beach t-shirt or a new york city t-shirt and it's it's very analogous to that so he's built this brand up there uh, that's focused uh, sort of geographically from its identity and since it's in a tourist slash recreation area it's one that he can then leverage into other locations because people want to be identified with that geographic area. And I thought that was pretty clever. And the identity of his business, Bela, is his identity, right? It's how he came back home and it has meaning for him. And that's really powerful, right? When you're, you're selling something that you believe in, the coffee, but you've rooted your brand in a place that you believe in, um, that makes it a lot easier to sell what you're selling, right? Because there's some substance there. Um, you know, by his own admission, this is he's not running a, a super efficient operation, right? It's small batch sizes, it's hand done, he's carrying bags upstairs, right? This is not a he's not trying to become the next Starbucks, right? He's just trying to provide an honest product in a location where there's a market for it, uh, with something that he's passionate about. And and I think that's a great that's a great takeaway for people to think about that there's room for people to do that. It's not a product that's like, oh, here's a brand new innovation, right? Or this is patented, right? It's not. He's selling coffee. Coffee's a commodity, but he's processing it away. I think that's, and I haven't tasted his coffee. I'll, next time I get over your side, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to pick some up. Uh, next time I get over to your side of the Atlantic, but it's a, uh, you know, it's something that he that he believes in, and he's doing with passion. And I think there's plenty of room for entrepreneurs who are passionate about their product and their brand and are making something good, right? And selling it at a, at a fair price. 
So I, yeah. I love the idea of this idea of rooting his brand in the place where he himself came back to reroute, essentially. Yeah, that was a great point about his brand is his identity and, you know, taking his passion and turning it into a business. And, you know, I saw his coffee roaster. Uh, I'll try to post some pictures uh, that I took up there. And, you know, it's it's amazing how small the operation actually is. And, and, uh, again, you know, we talked a little bit more off the air and if you're, if you're happy and you sort of have found your place in life, it really doesn't take that much money to live. And, um, I think that's another thing that, that Jim has figured out that, you know what, uh, and I think part of it has to do with some of the challenges and the health scare he had. I want to have this proper life work balance where uh, life comes first and work comes second. And um, I think he's done a great job at that. So it was, a, it was a really good conversation from that perspective. Do more with less, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, I appreciate that. We could, have a whole, we could have a whole episode on work-life balance because there's a very different approach to it over here um, from my experiences in Europe um, than what I experienced in the U.S. Uh, so that, that might be an interesting thing to bring a couple different people on to talk about work-life balance, and maybe we can put that in the, in the hopper for future ideas. Yeah, that's a good idea. I got a last question for you, Bella. Yeah. Did you catch any fish? Oh, we did. We went fishing in the pond, and uh, boy, that was great. <laughs> talk, talk about, you know, this is, one of, this is like reading a book about, or I, I almost felt like I went to Walden Pond, you know, the famous book by, written by Thoreau. Thoreau. It was like, here we are, you know, uh, sipping coffee and uh, with a fly rod in our hand, like uh, 50, 50 yards from his house down the hill, and uh, we actually caught some nice brook trout. Uh, that he, right, he made the pond. He found the spring on his property. He made a pond out of it. He stocked it with some trout. And now he's got a, literally a pond <laughs> out his back door where he feels like it. He can go down there and uh, and cast away. Taking control, right? That's kind of the theme, right? I'm going to take control. I'm going to make my world what I want it to be. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah very good. I'm glad you caught some fish, Bella. That was good. I'd hate for you to go all the way there and not catch anything. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, my normal fishing trips are uh, uh, the reason. There's, there's a reason they call it fishing and not catching. So that's <laughs> <laughs> so for me, fishing is uh, is the usual way. So I caught more fish with him in in an hour than I typically catch in half a day. <laughs> but you were set up for success, Bella. Right. That's the nice yeah, thing. Yeah. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Shall we wrap it, Mike? I think we should. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to you joining us for, for our next episode. I'm signing off from Münster, Germany. Bela, how about you? Well, I am signing off from upstate New York. And uh, hey, if you have any questions or thoughts or suggestions, uh, please reach out to us at belaandmike.com. And, let me try that again. At bela.and.mike at gmail.com. There we go. I always stumble over that. And uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, hey, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. Uh, it's free and uh, it, uh, it helps us a little bit by driving up our listener numbers. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to having you join us next week for our next one. See you next week, Mike.
See you next week, Bela. And thanks again to our sponsors, Philip Lytle. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.